Tabletop Hellhop Live, recorded September 26, 2018. This week, we talk about mermaids, coney dogs, and more Gloomhaven. And then, dig in for a knockdown drag out attempt at listing all board game mechanics with examples. Hello, and welcome to Tabletop Bellhop Live, Episode 9, Under the Hood. Coming to you from Hamilton, I'm Sean, and here with me, live and direct from Windsor, Ontario, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Moti. I am the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, your RPG maitre d', answering your game and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Let me put my years of game playing, event organizing, and game night hosting to use for you. I'd like to say hi to everyone hanging out in the lobby here on Twitch. It's a pleasure to see people interested. For those listening to the podcast, you can join us live every Wednesday night at 9.30 Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. We love hearing from our listeners and viewers. Each week, we hope to highlight some of the feedback we get, both positive and negative. Emmett O'Brien, in regards to our sound episode, says, Wow, now I've got a ton more toys to play with. Thanks, Mo. For those that missed it, Emmett is the one that asked the sound question over on G+. And I'm very glad we found some new stuff for you to check out, Emmett. You're going to have to let us know how it works out on your table. John Disjape on G Plus writes, Great stuff, an often overlooked component to great gaming. I'm almost exclusively a solo gamer, and I always use soundtracks to focus the experience. Though I just use YouTube. Thanks, John Dist. Or is it Jape? I feel like I'm walking on eggshells either way. There's nothing to be ashamed of as a solo gamer. When I'm playing Diablo or Fortnite, I'll often search out a YouTube playlist under the game title just to throw on for mood. Now this one goes back to episode 2, Child's Play. At random underscore scrub on Twitter writes, I just started listening to the podcast. On kids' games, I agree with the rumors. Stuffed Fables is superior to Mice and Mystics. SF is much more streamlined, but delivers a similar experience. I like both, but I love SF. I love the fact people are going back and listening to our backlog. They're not just tuning in for the first time and waiting for the next episode to download. That's really cool. It sounds like I really do have to pick up Stuff Fables at some point. So, uh, Anshi Games, our moderator, I know you're listening. Maybe this is a good bug to put in my mom's ear for Xmas. Something we can all play together as a family. Effie the Great on Instagram wrote today, and it was about our sound episode again. Thanks for this recommendation. Thanks to you, I was able to find some great thematic playlists on Spotify and also listen to the Cafe Soundscape station to help me tune out distractions at work. Thumbs up emoji. Well, I haven't been able to check out those Office Focus recommendations we had for our listeners, but I've been doing a lot of audio-based work, but it's in my task list. We love feedback and interaction. If you see any of our posts on social media, please jump in and comment. Most of our feedback comes from Facebook, Twitter, and G+, and I guess as of today, Instagram. We love interacting with our audience on all types of social media. We get better with your comments and suggestions. And if you'd like to let us know something about the show, send your feedback to mo at tabletopbellhop.com and or sean at tabletopbellhop.com. That's S-E-A-N. And now, Tabletop Gaming Weekly, where we look back and summarize what's happened since we were last here. What games hit the Bellhop's tabletop? Every week, I like to take a look back at the games we played, any events we attended, and other cool gaming stuff that's going on. You can catch the blog version of hashtag What Did You Play Mondays every week at tabletopbellhop.com. So first, a quick summary. We're gonna I'll get into details in a moment. So 
one of the big things that hit in our house was the start of the school year, which also meant start of the school year colds. Like everyone got it. That happens every year. We've had to cancel a few game nights. Because of that, I've been playing a lot more online than in person. What was really cool, though, is Sean came down on the weekend. He got some gaming in with us and we got some great food. I did play another RPG with the kids and we played Gloomhaven not once but twice. So jumping to the online play, that's as we've talked about, it feels like every episode and they should start sending us money or at least give us a subscriber accounts or what are the premium accounts is on Board Game Arena. So I'm still playing Seven Wonders Race for the Galaxy. The way it's set up now when a game finishes, the host just does a re- rematch and we play again. But the big one is I started playing Terra Mystica on there. Now, I don't know if you read my Gaia Project review, but that ended with me saying I need to play more Terra Mystica to make a call between the two. So first off, I will say that Terra Mystica on Board Game Arena is pretty impressive. It looks pretty good. Uh, it doesn't, not quite as cool as the physical, but like all the graphics are there, but it is a little difficult to figure out how to do things. Like it took me a while to figure out how to raise my terraforming rating and stuff like that. And plus it took a while to remember all the rules and they weren't always clear, especially the special powers for the different races. So I now will strongly say don't use board game arena to try to learn games. Now I know a lot of apps are great at teaching games. Board game arena is definitely set up for people who already know how to play the games. So getting back to the comparison of Terra Mystica and Gaia Project, I now will admit they are less similar than I thought. Playing Gaia Project, having not played Terra Mystica in like four or five years, they really felt similar. Like it felt 99% the same. Now I would scale that back to more like 80-85. I do think Gaia Project is an evolution of Terra Mystica, but they are different enough. I still want to keep playing. There are 14 different races in the game, and I've tried three. And now I really need to play Gaia Project again. I still haven't picked that up, having said that I own Terra Mystica. Do I need Gaia Project? I still am happy with Terra Mystica, but I would like to try it again. So I'm going to try to reach out to Chad, local gamer, whose copy I got to play the other day. Yeah, you know what? I've I've really been enjoying the the board game arena uh, stuff. One thing I'm finding is Seven Wonders is... Plays differently on the uh, on the digital version. Uh, one thing I've noticed is the time delay between turns has a much bigger effect than you might necessarily think. Uh, when you're yeah. playing at a table, you're really the, right there in the game and involved and paying attention. But when you when you're taking one turn a day or one turn every several hours and you're doing a bunch of things in between, it's really easy to get distracted and you don't have the same sort of focus uh, in the game. I find. Uh, so that's yeah, you, that's been my experience on, on the Seven Wonders uh, with Board Game Arena. Yeah, you think it's bad in Seven Wonders. Try Terra Mystica when there's eight different actions. And you come back to the next day and you load it up and you're like, wow, I just spent all my power to get two priests. Why the heck did I want two priests? <laughs> it's killing me. So last weekend, Sean was down. It was awesome. He had came down. He had some local stuff he had to do. And we had some video files we wanted to transfer over something that we're working on that I hope will lead to more content. We recorded, or Deanna and I recorded me building a Gloomhaven insert and then reboxing Gloomhaven into the insert and back into the box. And it's a lot of video and we are having a lot of problems because we kept disconnecting on Twitch and her camera will only record video for about 15, 20 minutes. It ended up when we were done. I couldn't tell you the size. Sean probably could, but a huge amount of files and a huge file size for each. 
So we figured it was a lot easier for him to just come down and grab the files off us. So yeah, we had about 12 gigs of uh, of files. Uh, and then there was more actually because you we had to pull the, the Twitch streams down yep. off of that. So there was basically 12 gigs of locally recorded video plus all the Twitch uh, video. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a lot. Now we've, we've done, we're, we're learning a few things. Uh, we didn't uh, plan ahead in advance quite well enough. Oh. That's proving to make things a little more difficult to edit it all together. Uh, next time we'll, we'll hopefully uh, have learned from our lessons and be able to put together a cleaner set of video that's easier to edit. Ideally, once we uh, get this nailed down, we'll be able to put together that much more content for our subscribers in a well-produced manner and not just, uh, you know, quick and dirty streaming. Not that there's anything wrong with quick and dirty streaming. No, no. So while Sean was here, there were two things we had to do. And number one, the most important, I think, was go for Coney Dogs at the Windsor Sandwich Shop. Absolutely. You know what? You can't beat a good Coney Dog. And the Windsor Sandwich Shop is offering real Detroit Lafayette-style Coney Dogs. It's, it tastes like Detroit. You know, you can't ask for anything better. It was exactly what I was hoping it would be. Uh, worth every minute of worth every minute of six hours of driving. So there was the other thing I wanted to do while Sean was here. Well, I guess besides transfer the audio video files. But uh, and we talk a lot about Terraforming Mars on the show and how it's probably the best game in my collection. And we figured it was about time Sean played. Now I didn't want to overwhelm him like we did with Wasteland Express. So we went with just the uh, the basic game, no corporate wars, like just the base map. He had a beginner corp. DNI drafted corporations, but we took out all of the corporate wars cards. I think it went pretty well. Like Sean came in second place, which is pretty good. I was expecting a more complex game than I got. I think, and not in a bad way. Um, I think just hearing about it over and over again, I I'd worked it up into my uh, brain as a more complex game than it actually was. So I found when I did sit down, oh well, this makes a lot of sense, and everything's pretty straightforward. It helps that I've got a great teacher. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, it, it made a lot of sense. Again, I had a beginner corporation, so I think that made it a big deal because I know I really did burn through all the cards I got in that first round, and it was so it was def- that was definitely an advantage. But uh, no, I'm looking forward to playing that one again. Yeah, it's it's a way easier game than it looks, and what I like is it builds slowly, like many of these games. Like you're only going to have pl- play maybe one or two cards on your tableau at the beginning. And you only have, especially if you don't have the beginner corp, you don't have a lot of options to start. But even with the hand of 10 cards, you won't be able to afford them all. So it's really easy to go, okay, these five cards I can't play yet. And these ones I don't have the requirements for. So out of these three cards, what do I want to play? I do like that. Yeah, it was pretty obvious every turn. Okay, I'm going to be playing this card this turn for sure. And maybe doing a couple of other things on my on my board. At least with my cards, you know, there were the expensive cards that were going to come later. And there were the cheap cards that needed to come first. And the rest was all down to whether or not I could play it due to temperature and oxygen. Yeah, it's, I'm still loving that game. It, it, it's it got to be good if I'm still playing it that odd. That and Azul are the two games that kind of recently really blew my mind and just keep hitting the table over and over. So going back to the rest of the week. So last week we talked about how about my daughter, Big G, my, my oldest, ran Tales of Equestria, the My Little Pony role-playing game. I really thought she would run that again on Sunday, but she didn't. I, w- I was surprised. But then Mermaid Day happened, and I didn't account for that. Mermaid Day? I was sitting here working something on the blog, or I think I was working on the latest blog post, something on, uh, yeah, I was working on the definitions, and I'm sitting here, and the kids come down the stairs, and it sounds a little odd. It's like thump, 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 like not 
not in a bad way, but it didn't sound right. And they come down and they waddle into the computer room, which is just kind of, they were over here. And they were both wearing mermaid tails. And they were mermaids that could walk. And they had these blankets that basically are big blankets that look like mermaid tails. So when you put your feet in them, you look like a mermaid. And they're like, it's Mermaid Day. We're mermaids that can walk. Uh, I kept thinking, but like people can walk. Uh, whatever. I thought this would last like an hour or two. No, this this was an all day. This was like a pajama day, but it was Mermaid Day. And while I had Mermaid Adventures on my desk from last week's show, I was showing it off and we were talking about it last week. And I figure, hey, this would be kind of perfect. I'm like, so I asked the girls, I said, you want to pretend you're mermaids? Why don't we play Mermaid Adventures? And they were like, oh, yes, yes, we have to. Very popular. So before dinner, we sat downstairs to my in my gaming room and um, I set everything up. And I'm like, okay, you got your dice bag. And they found, my daughter found her dice bag. I gave her a Crown Royal dice bag. And you got your dice in it, and the game just uses black and white D6s, and I gave them five of each, and they're in their little dice bag. And I'm like, all right, let's go. And they're like, what do you mean we have to make characters? I'm like, well, you guys have characters. We made characters before. No, I don't know where that went. And Jen's like, oh, remember I got, I don't even remember what, something on it, and it had to be thrown out. And I'm like, oh, that's too bad. (laughs) The kind of sad part is there is actually advancement rules in that game. Like, there's an XP system. You can, I don't remember what you get XP for. I think, like, one's for showing up, one's for finishing the adventure, and one's for doing something really cool or something like that. And you spend them to improve your characters. I'm like, oh, well. The kids didn't seem to care, though, because this way they got to make new characters. And one of the best parts about making new characters are there's random tables where you figure out, like, your hairstyle, your eyes, your fin color. And the kids are all about that, and especially drawing it when they're done. So if you follow me on Twitter, I shared pictures. Actually, the character sheets are just back there. And they've got these cute, two cute mermaids. Big G made a uh, ray folk because all the merm, a normal mermaid to us would be a fish folk in that game. Well, there's fish folk and ray folk and shark folk and eel folk and all that stuff. So Big G made an eel folk and little G made a uh, ray folk. And Little G rolled up sharp teeth as a weapon. So she was obsessed with having these sharp teeth. And she then took a magic ability to turn into a piranha. The The creepy part, though, is she couldn't pronounce piranha. And she kept saying, I want sharp teeth and I turn into a parantula. And I'm like, well, what's a parantula? And she's like, you know, the thing with the teeth and it's scary, a parantula. And I'm like, is that like a piranha and a tarantula combined? She's like, yeah, that. Oh, that's just creepy as heck. I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, do you mean piranha, the fish with the teeth? She's like, oh, yeah, that. But then when we were playing, no, it was still parantula. So she kept turning into a parantula. I, I think on Twitter I recommended you trademark that right away because yeah. sci-fi is going to make a movie. Just saying. Oh, yeah. yeah tarantula piranhas in the water. Yeah. I tried. I wanted to get her to draw a picture of it, but she drew a piranha because in her head, that's what she was picturing. I'm like, oh, I wanted the eight leg thing. Oh, well. We played a short adventure. It's a really simple system. It's D6 dice pools where you get a D6 for every stat you have. There's uh, three, four stats, four stats, body, mind, charm, and luck. You get to roll as many dice as that, and then if you have an appropriate quirk, you get to add it. If you have an appropriate drive, you get to add it. Basically, 
for every good excuse the kids could come up with that they should have a bonus, they get a D6, and they get to add their stat. Then I decide as the, the dungeon master or navigator in that game, that we should do a blog post on all the different terms for GM at some point. So it's, not, it's more RPG-focused. So I was the navigator, and I hand them black dice for how hard it is with like the average difficulty being two. So I hand them dice, they roll, and all they're looking for is four, five, and six on the dice. Four, five, or six is a success. And then black dice cancel out white dice. If there's white dice left, then they succeed. There's some really neat rules for... Um, spending luck and all that stuff there's some re-rolls and damage is handled very abstractly but what i liked about this is little g was much more into it like she's younger she's eight and playing tales of equestria she got it but we had to help a lot in tales of equestria we'd say roll body and then she'd be like body and then she'd have to look and then she'd have to find the body stat and then we'd be like what's that say oh it says four or whatever, say D6. She's like, well, what's a six? And then she had to find the six-sided die. Even worse was like the D4 or the D8. With this, it was just, okay, you roll body. She looks and says three. She grabs three dice. And then I tell her it's difficulty two. And then she looks through her quirks. She's like, oh, this will give me another die. She got it a lot better. She got the mechanics a lot better. Story-wise, she was all about My Little Pony. She had no problem with the role-playing aspect of Tales of Equestria. But the mechanics, I, I think Mermaid Adventures is a little better for her. Now, Big G, Big G wants to be a narrator. Holy cow. Like, I was having problems with her. Like, she fit in awesome at QCC where the players have narrative control because I was trying to set up a mystery and she's like so let's say at the party there was this sneaky person and I just happened to see them sneak out of the room and I'm like no 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 I know who did it we're not trying to determine that you have to solve that and in this type of role playing you have to figure out what your character would do and you can't influence the rest of the story that's up to the narrator i'm like she's all ready for modern story gaming past the stick role playing that's awesome i actually forgot i was supposed to have my mermaid tail down here I, my family has one too uh, and i completely oh, forgot nice. to bring it down here but what i did find unfortunately a second ago was roger corman in 23 t- in 2013 tweeted to clarify parantula is a half piranha half tarantula and Mermantula is a half merman, half tarantula. Oh, man, so, Mermantula. So Roger Corman beat us to it by, like, five years. But I may have to add the Mermantula as the main bad guy now. There, there is a lot of discussion, though, because a Mermantula would already be half man, half fish. And then, so it's actually quarter man, quarter half fish, quarter. half tarantula is, is the debate that goes on in that uh, Twitter thread there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a tarantula has eight legs, and if it was only a quarter tarantula, it would only have two legs. So isn't every... No, merman doesn't have any legs. There you go. Wow. All right. (laughs) So on to Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven went much better this week. We played Friday and had a good enough time. Tori and Kat came back Saturday. So this time I did some research. I kind of mentioned this last week, but after we failed hard, I went nuts online looking at FAQs, specifically... um, common rules, mistakes people make. The hard part is I didn't want to spoil anything because this is a legacy game. So I was just trying to go in and find out if we messed anything up. We did not. So it's either us or it's the game, right? But what I did find is everywhere, like every review I read said best with three players or less. Four players are not recommended. Four players is too chaotic. You can't plan with four players. 
There's too many things on the map. Far too many turns, you burn a card and you don't get to use it. And sure enough, that is the problem we are having. So what would happen with four players is you're allowed to discuss your cards, but you can't say what card you're playing or the specific initiative you're going to go at. So it's got the rules like Shadows over Camelot, where you're not allowed to discuss your actual, excuse me, the mechanics on your card. So when you're trying to strategize, like, I'm going to go early in the turn, hoping to go for the before the bad guys and try to do some damage to these three guys. The next player is like, okay, I'm going to try to go a little later and I'm going to do this. Well, what would happen is like three or four times during the game, by the time it got to your turn, you couldn't do it because someone else had moved or killed the bad guy or blocked the doorway or whatever. I guess that's less common with three players. With four players, it was happening a lot. Now... That game is all about card management. It's it's a card management game where you are trying... Your cards are your lifeblood. So every round you pick two cards to play. And then when you're done them, they generally go in your discard pile. And you only start with a hand, depending on which race you're playing, actually. One of the hands of the characters, I think, was only eight. Mine's 11 cards. So the next turn, I have to play two cards. The next turn, I have to play two cards. Well, eventually, you're going to run out of cards, and you have to rest. When you rest, one of those cards gets permanently removed for the rest of the match. And then you pick up the rest of your hand, and you keep playing. So every time you rest, you're dealing with less cards. Now, added to that, every time you take damage, you can discard a card instead of taking the damage. In general, if you're taking more than three damage in one hit, you probably want to discard a card. So you're burning through these cards quick. So to have a card, two cards, wasted because someone moved in the wrong spot is extremely frustrating. And it makes the game very difficult. And this is one thing I don't think we really touched on that much when we were talking about teaching. But uh, when you're you're getting ready to teach, doing your research and, and really... Covering that, and and I think in this time, you know, you, because you were worried about the spoilers, because it is a campaign game, yeah. you were trying to be uh, cautious, and, and that kind of bit you well, as a result. There's that too, but plus, like we play, it's a couple, right? It's me and my wife playing with another couple. What am I going to say, Tori? You watch while we play this week. Then next, we're each cat. You watch, like I, we were going to play four players no matter what, right? So we're not going to play with four. The other thing I found during this this field research was to not be afraid to play on easy. So every time you go to play a game, you decide what level at. So you figure out your par- average party level, very D&D-like. You add up your total party number and divide by two. Even though you're playing with four players, you only divide by two. And then you round up. Well, at first level, that rounds up to one, if everyone's first level. But you can always play one level back, and you can actually play harder levels where you can play levels ahead. Basically, with four players, a lot of people are suggesting just play on easy. Actually, with three and two players, people are suggesting the first couple missions play on easy. But even more so, if you're playing four, just play with two players. So we did the research, right? So the only thing you lose out of the game, like what mechanics, what you mechanically lose in the game is two XP. But you're going to end up playing more cards and lasting longer, and you get XP by playing cards. And I I would have to play a ton of games and do the research, but I have a feeling you probably get that 2 XP back just by playing more cards because you're more effective. Now, the other thing is I am playing this game for the experience of playing the game. I want to see the story, especially something like Gloomhaven. And this is something I started doing with video games back with, I think, Assassin's Creed 2. I'm like, why am I playing on normal? I'm not a hardcore video gamer. I just want to hear, 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 see the Assassin, play the Assassin's Creed story. So I'm going to play on the easiest mode possible as long as it doesn't remove any content. 
right? If I can't play the last mission because I'm on easy, I won't play on easy. But otherwise, I want to play it on the easiest mode possible, and I want to hit some buttons and feel like I accomplished something. But I don't want it to be frustrating. I get rather angry when playing video games, so not getting frustrated is good. And I just want to get to the end of the game and see the story. I think the same thing. I want this with Gloomhaven. I want to get the full experience, but it still felt like a defeat. Like it felt like we were giving up to play on easy, but we tried it anyway. Well, and it's, it's a different sort of thing. And you know, I do the same thing in games. You know, I'm not a hardcore gamer. I enjoy playing around. I play Fortnite, but I'm not there to get kills. I'm there to have fun. And it's, we're used to that in board games. You're not used to that sort of difficulty level and stepping it, stepping it back. It really is the same thing, but the, uh, the feeling is different. At that point, it was hard to tell how much the impact that first game had because it was super easy. Like it, it was almost a cakewalk, but it wasn't because we played on easy. The thing was the monsters move. The monster AI is all card driven. So you shuffle these cards and you flip it up to see what the monsters are going to do. And what they did this time is the bad guys were almost useless. Which kind of makes me wonder if that first game where we got destroyed, it was just the opposite, was bad luck. Because this time, the bandit guards, if anyone's played the first scenario, I'm not spoiling anything, you can look it up in the book, it's the first scenario. The bandit guards that guard the first room never moved. Three rounds in a row, they drew a card that had them just put up guards. The other thing is, when they put up the guards, if you can go before them, you damage them before their guards up. So once they did it the first time, we all made sure to act quickly in case it happened again, and sure enough, it did. And then we got into the next room. We metagamed it, so there's a rule in the game. This is kind of cheap, but you know what it works? Is if there aren't enough standees for a monster, it doesn't spawn. So we rushed the second room because we knew there were guards in there, and if we opened the door before all the other guards went, there wouldn't be enough guards to put the new guards down. We kind of did that, and then there were archers in the other room. Well, every time the archers acted, they moved fast but did less damage, so they were all attacking at minus one, and the archers only do two damage. The Only the last room was a challenge at all. But, no, what was kind of cool is it felt good being a badass. Like, our characters were kicking butt. Like, we were using blast spells and pushing people and forcing people into traps. And it, we got to see our powers work together. Plus, we, as a team, were working better and we were doing a lot more card combos off each other. What I know about Gloomhaven and what I've seen is it's really about developing that, that team integration. You've got your tank, you've got your support, you've got... You know, your standard, you know, party mechanics. And because, especially with the four-player, you've got that chance of wasting turns if you aren't mm -hmm. all really well in sync. Knowing how your party reacts and how everyone is going to play their role really becomes a massive advantage. Uh, and it sounds like you guys sort of have now developed that. I know I know. in that first game you guys were so excited about, oh, let's, let's, let's just... Pick from the pictures on the box. I think. Well, yeah. And I think if, if you had known, if everyone I, had known the characters a little bit better going in, there might have been a little bit of advantage, a little bit of extra advantage towards you knowing more about how everyone was able to act, whether or not you you know knew how they were, were going to act. Yeah, I don't think we have a balanced party either, because out of the six characters, the ones we took were two heavy hitters and two spellcasters. Right. So. Who knows? I don't even know what's in the other boxes. I know I know one something kind of tinkerer that lays traps, but I don't know anything else. So based on how easy that game was, we talked about it for a bit going back to normal. 
But you know what? We had more fun than we did the first time. Even if it was easy, we had more fun. Especially after getting spanked in Pandemic Legacy. It was kind of nice with that group to do well. So we stayed at easy and we did mission two. Now here's where I now feel good about where we were at. It was not easy. It was a challenge. One of the things we did is we added the X cards. So when you make your character, you get all the level one cards and there's a bunch of X cards and you can choose to swap out one to one, the X cards for the numbered cards, but they warn you, these are more advanced and only do them once you played a couple times. Well, we had played a couple times. We found those cards made a big difference. Uh, the Craig card I'm playing allowed me to add some wind element cards, which allowed cats, I have no idea what her crystal elf race is called, but allowed her to use my wind magic to do some cool stuff. We played better. Again, we were getting better at working together. We now played three games. But this match had a bad guy opening doors, and when he opened doors, more bad guys spawned. And if he had opened one more door, there is no way we would have won. Like, it was down to the one round of play when we took him out. When we ended the game, I had three cards left. Like, that's it. And as I described earlier, I would have got to play those cards once, rest, play one more set of cards, and been out for the rest of the game. So there is no way I could have fought another room of guys. And Anshi Games was playing her Skaven Rat Dude was already knocked out at that point. So I think this seems to be the sweet spot, at least at four players. Yeah, so it's, it really does sound like if you're going to go with four players... That's great. Drop it down to easy and go in there expecting that that's how the game is designed if you're playing for with four. Yeah, it does seem like that. But we did still have the four player problems like more times than ever this time where I went to go do something and I'm like, oh, I have nothing to do. And I had a card that was um, get an XP for destroying an obstacle. So I kept describing it as my guy smashing obstacles with his head because I had nothing else to do. I'm like, eh, I guess I get some XP. But you know what? That was part of the fun, too, because Tori hung back and looted all this loot instead of being effective for one turn, which was slightly frustrating. But that's part of the game, right? And the fact he could do that and we didn't lose because of it made it good i i think this is the sweet spot i think we're sticking for easy for the next mission at least and we'll probably go through the whole campaign like this but i do have a lot more respect for gloomhaven than i did the first game i still don't think it deserves number one no game with this many problems should be number one in my opinion but it's it's moving up it's it's definitely was more enjoyable this time one thing i i was reading an article today on uh the rule on on rules and and rule problems in games and uh someone on board game he could come up with a, a statistic where they basically compared the, the size of the rules to the number of threads on board game geek about question rule questions okay and yeah it, i can't say gloomhaven fared that well in the uh in the overall analysis it's a big book and there are a lot of there like when i was doing that research like i meant research yeah. this wasn't like i googled it for 10 minutes and watched a couple things like actually when sean was down we watched the here's a recommendation watch the shut up and sit down review it is hilarious it if nothing else yeah. it's, it's it's very entertaining and it does give a pretty good overview of the game and he does point out some of the frustrations I also had. Yeah. But he really loves being a little rat dude. And he didn't spoil anything. No. A excellent job and not unless you consider looking at the map set up on the table spoilers, but like in this book, it's not like Pandemic Legacy where you're opening well, you are gonna open some stuff, but like all the scenarios are in the book, you're gonna flip past them. I don't think that's spoiling anything. We record the show live Wednesday nights at nine thirty Eastern on Twitch, and we encourage people to drop in and take part in our chat room in the lobby. Thanks to our moderator, Angie Games. Now, we've got a crowded room in here tonight. We've got awesome. uh, all sorts of people in here. Joe Swick is in there. 
Caldern has stopped by. We've got Matmon Gaming, uh, May Suggins, uh, and then Commander Root and Cogwhistle. Hey, Commander Root, thanks for joining <laughs> us again. Teldurn, is that Teldurn of Broadsword fame? I, I believe it is. Oh, that is awesome. Broadsword is a remaking of the classic Hero Quest. So we've had a little bit of discussion going on. Uh, Anshi Games was uh, bringing up a few uh, little details. I guess the X card that she added allowed uh, her to force an ally to an attack with the swarm of rats. Yes, that was awesome. Yeah, that's the other thing we did. If you check my Instagram feed or Twitter is I started putting miniatures in. So her swarm of rats, I went and got a D&D mini swarm of rats. And I replaced all the doors from the old Warhammer Fortress, the foam castle. I've got those doors out there. We pimped up the game a little bit. It looks pretty good, but then the doors don't work so great because you often stand in the spot in the door and the cardboard standees don't fit. It looks good. And then... Halfway through the last game, we took all the doors away and went back to the counters. The rest of the stuff, though, like the counters are great. Cat had like some invisible dude she could summon that shot arrows. And I found one of my old Litco invisible tiflings and we used that. You can see it in the pictures. It's pretty awesome. So, yes, Teldurn is of broadsword fame. Thanks for joining us. You can find us all across the web now. And we grow by the support of listeners and viewers like you. So please take a minute to subscribe to our content on your favorite platform or give us a like, comment, or review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever you find us and help us spread our gaming advice to the world. Now, reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help us come up during searches, so we really like to see those there. Absolutely. The only way we get up in our in the rankings is with those reviews. Now, if you stream on Twitch and are interested in a mutual hosting agreement, we would love to hear from you. We host you, you host us, and everyone wins. Just contact Mo at TabletopBellhop.com and we can set something up. Sign up and receive Tabletop Bellhop weekly in your inbox. Every Wednesday, we'll be sending out an email recapping all the content we released the week previous. Blog posts, new podcast episodes, reviews, or anything else we create. You can sign up at newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com or go over to the TabletopBellhop.com webpage and you'll find a spot to subscribe in the sidebar. Each episode, we look to answer one or more of your game, gaming, or game night questions. You can send your questions to questions at tabletopbellhop.com, or you can head over to the webpage, tabletopbellhop.com, and click on Ask the Bellhop. We went an entire week without a new question. It makes me sad. You don't want me to be sad, do you? But today's question, NecroDaddy80 on Twitch asks, What game mechanics do you prefer? I love the fact we get questions from, like, all over the place. Like, we get them on Twitch, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the, the webpage. That is awesome. No matter where you are, we're there to help improve your game night. Thanks, NecroDaddy80, who joined us for our first ever live stream and asked this question. Now, we spoke about this question when I was down last week, and we knew it was going to be a bit of a loaded question. It's tough to answer in a concise, quick manner. Well, how did you do? Well, when I sat down to answer this question, it kind of got away from me. It started with my favorite mechanics, and then it just kept going. Then I started listing every mechanic I could think of. Then I did a Google search on mechanics. And then I went to Board Game Geek and looked at the tags. They have 51 mechanics they define there that they think exist. And I got to say, I don't really, I'm not on the same page with Board Game Geek here. Now, I've already seen a lot of back and forth on this since the blog post came out, so we're sure to have a lot of feedback next week on this topic. Even defining what is a mechanic is not simple. 
But, I mean, Board Game Geek is as good a place as any to start from. So, first off, I'm going to a- answer Necro's question. Ever since Kalis came out, I found I really like worker placement games. Now, before that, I was already a fan of role or accent selection games, like in Puerto Rico. And worker placement is kind of an evolution of, of that type of mechanic. Now, when we talk about deck building, which we have on many shows, I prefer deck building to deck construction. And some of my favorite deck builders are Clank and Core Worlds. Now, I also have a soft spot for tile-laying games. Carcassonne was probably one of my favorites, and I love playing that actually with my mom and my dad. But more recently, an update to that would be Isle of Sky. Now, I would say probably almost every game I really like involves some type of engine building, where you're starting off small and it grows into something bigger by the end of the game. So just in that brief answer, we have worker placement, action role selection, deck building, deck construction, tile-laying, engine building. That's six different mechanics. Some we've spoken about in previous episodes, but some are new to the listeners of this uh, podcast. Yes. So I don't really know the best way to present this. Like on the blog, it's a nice big list, right? It works. It's a dictionary. It's an alphabetical order. I, I guess I'll do the same thing here. I will list off each term. I'll give a short description and then maybe some example games. We are going to start off at action points. So this is players get a certain number of points. They're spent to do things. In an action point system, you're given so many points to do things. And then each thing you do costs a certain number of points. Uh, One of the best examples is Pandemic. You get four action points a turn. And with those, you can move. You can do a direct flight. You can do a chartered flight. You can cure a disease. You can build a research station or whatever there's a bunch of different choices and each time you spend one point you do one you spend another point you do another Uh, another going to role-playing terms the fasa 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 star trek had a huge action point system where you get like 16 points a turn and moving one square on the map was one point turning left was another point and firing a phaser was three points so action points get a set number of points spend them to do stuff video gamers can think of XCOM or similar games where you have a set number of potential motions and a list of actions to take within that number of, of turns. So then I get into action role selection. So this is a selection of different actions that a player can take, but they have to pick a subset of those. Usually it's just one action per player, but there are variations. So the most famous one of this is Puerto Rico, where you're going to pick one of the different roles. So action selection, role selection, here's a bunch of different actions or roles. Pick one. So Race for the Galaxy is the biggest one. Do you explore? Do you you develop do you build planets puerto rico are you the merchant are you i don't remember the roles the builder and so on you're going to pick one of those actions and carry it out now when reading this i had thought oh this seems like a subset of action points but really like it's a very limited action if it is it's you've got one action point and you're choosing and you're and you're choosing from a set of A bunch of these can kind of be defined that way, right? Like, I guess action selection is action points where you only get one point, or action points are action selection where you get more selections. Yeah. There's a lot of gray areas all around on this. (laughs) Yeah. To me, the difference is in action role selection, you have multiple choices. You pick one. Um, In some games... No one else can pick that one. That's Puerto Rico. In other games, other people can pick the same one. Race for the Galaxy. 
Moving on to area control. You win or get points for controlling an entire section of the map. This is usually in war games, but it's all often in other games. Uh, the most recent one I had for this was Wonder Warhammer Underworlds, where if you had the right objective cards for standing on one of the objectives, if you controlled the objective by the end of the turn, you got a point. Now, there is a different term, area majority. I think that's something different, and we'll get to that soon. And they can be similar, but they aren't necessarily the same. Correct. So area enclosure, there's not a lot of games that do this, but this is where you're placing your pieces to cover an area or control it. Uh, Go is one of these for the classic, but I think of games like Through the Desert or even when you're building fences in Agricola. So if you enclose something, aren't you controlling it? Well, you are, but the difference is is an area control game, the areas are set at the start of the game, they're on the map. Whereas in an enclosure game, the areas are created by the players playing. Moving to area majority. So the difference between area majority and area control is multiple people can be in the area at the end of the turn game. So you're going to score points based on how much you have in that area. So the person with the most pieces is going to get the most points. The second with the second most pieces is going to get the second most points. So when you're looking at area control, you're looking at risk. You don't move into the area until you wipe out the enemies. When you're looking at area majority, you're thinking games like El Grande, which is a fantastic example of that type of game. In this place, we've got even the land count at the end of Terraforming Mars. Yes. Asymmetric games. So this is every player's game start condition is different from every other player's. So either different starting positions, different player powers, or different decks. Cry Havoc is a great folk on a map example. Uh, Seven Wonders would be asymmetric because your starting wonder is different. That is correct. Auction bidding. I think this one's pretty self-explanatory. There's either open or blind bid auctions. They use these in a ton of different games. Probably the best known gaming auction mechanic is in Power Grid. But then there's a game called Going Going Gone that combines dexterity with auction bidding. So there's a range here. Well, I think most people can get the concept of auction and bidding. That one shouldn't be over folks' heads. And another one that's similar is betting. You're going to bet money or in-game resources of some type on an outcome in the game. Not necessarily the end of the game, but usually one little part of it. Of course, everyone's heard of poker, but a lesser-known game is Spartacus, based on the TV series Spartacus. Check your local laws for gambling regulations in your area. (laughs) Yes. Actually, a bunch of us probably shouldn't be playing any games with dice, because that's considered gambling, I guess, according to some states and provinces. Moving on to block games. This is a specific type of hex encounter, coming later, war game where the counters are replaced by blocks which are stood up. This gives you a fog of war, so you don't know what the opponents have. Columbia Games makes a ton of these. They are the master of the block war game. Just Google Columbia Games, you'll find them. Hammer of the Scots is one of the best. If you're not familiar with the term fog of war, think civilization where the map isn't revealed until you get into that area with your player or your uh, your units. Campaign. When the actions of one game carry over to the next, this does not include every game with scenarios to me. For a real campaign, the results of the game have to carry over or impact the next game. So Imperial Assault, yes. Zombicide, nope. And we've been talking about legacy games all the time lately. Legacy games are campaign games by definition. That is correct. Card-driven games. Uh, pretty self-explanatory. The main way you engage with the game is through cards. 
can be kind of big. Like this, this one's probably, I could probably write another set of definitions for types of card driven games. So you're going from things like the command and color system to games that just use cards as markers or references. Poker. Yep. Uh, chip based war games. Uh, see Hex Encounter. Be there in a minute. Moving on. Deduction games. Games where logic and deduction are required to solve a puzzle or complete the game. Also, social deduction games. If you listen to... I don't remember the episode. I should have had that open. I review the thing, Infection at Outpost 31. I talk about my uh, love-hate relationship with social deduction games. For the family gamers, Clue is a social deduction is a deduction game. Drafting games. You are given a selection of things. You pick one and pass the others. Now, this also includes drafting where everything's out on the table and everyone picks one and it goes around the table that you'd see in Magic the Gathering. And, or it could be the main point of the game, like in Medieval Academy or Seven Wonders. Bag or deck building. Players start out with a basic deck of cards or set of things in a bag. And part of the gameplay is adding things to that deck or bag. This can be seen as the only mechanic in a game, which is like in Dominion, where the entire game is just building that deck. Or it can be part of the game, like in Concordia, where everyone starts off the same set of actions, and then you're going to add four or five new cards to your hand throughout the game to give you new actions. Now, there's a growing trend of using things other than cards, which is why I put bag building here. So you've got wooden discs in a bag like Orléans or Hyperborea uses your standard resource cubes. Now, don't confuse this with deck construction, even though, now I will admit, I've been thinking about changing this term and trying to lean towards deck improvement instead of deck building, but I can't see that ever taking off just because everyone knows the term deck building. The do. Does this fall under deck bag building or is that a separate... Uh... No, this is different because in the Duke, there's no way to improve your bag. We both start off with identical bags at the beginning of the game. Now, I do think you could make an awesome game if there was some mechanic in the Duke where every time I captured your tile, I got to add a new tile to my bag. That that would make... I might have to sell that one. So, going on to deck construction. Uh, the Duke could be deck construction. Players assemble a deck of cards before the game begins and then use that deck for the whole game. So, in the Duke, when we played, we used the standard deck. But I do have a bunch of expansions, and what we could do before the game is build separate bags. So the Duke would fall under deck construction. Now, I just mentioned it, deck improvement. Start with a bad deck, add more cards through play. I think it's a better term than deck building, but there's no way we're going to get the rest of the world to change their mind on using the term deck building. Dexterity game. Games where the player's actual physical ability is tested. You're flicking, stacking, balancing. You've got Bandu, which is a really great stacking game, and Pitch Car, which is the best race game ever made. And now Drop It, everyone's talking about, even Misdirected Mark is playing it. Yes. Yeah, they, they gave us quite the shout out the last show. They, they liked our uh, QCC episode, which was awesome to hear. This one's really simple, dice rolling. If you roll dice, it's a dice rolling game. Again, kind of, kind of like uh, card-driven like, that's so vague, it's almost useless. I could probably do a bunch of definitions of different way dice are used in a game. Monopoly! It's a roll and move game. You know, like every game that was put out when we were kids. Drawing. Angie Games, maybe clarify this, because when I said it, we were just talking about cards. She thought drawing cards. No, in this case, I mean using a marker, pen, pencil to draw something. Usually you see this in party family games, like Pictionary. Now, if you like Pictionary and Win, Lose, and Draw, you really want to check out Pictomania. This is by Vlada Shavadl, the guy who designs heavy Euro games, did a version of Pictionary, and it is really good. 
He made a gamer's version of win, lose, or draw. Yeah, no thank you. Some of us are just not made to uh, have our hand-drawn art shared with the world. All right, engine building. I mentioned this is probably my favorite mechanic. This is you need to build some form of system to score points. System starts small, but it grows as the game goes on. Scoring usually escalates as the game goes on. So like the first round, you're scoring five points. Then you're scoring eight points. No, that's not much up. But then 20, then 50. And then the last round, you score 350 points. That's the way scoring works in Russian Railroads, one of my favorite engine building games. You're you're managing complexity and systems that are all escalating as you go along. Yeah, what I like about those is they start off easy and the complexity grows. Terraforming Mars, to me, is an engine building game. You're starting with two cards in your tableau, and then you start building your card combos. By the end of the game, you got half your tables covered with cards. Great system. Folk on a map. A lot of people like to use the term dudes on a map, but I'd like to be a little more progressive in that, and I am using the term folk on a map. This is a form of area control or area majority game that involves moving units, usually miniatures, on a map. Risk is obviously the most well-known one, but this includes tons of modern games like Kemet and uh, Rising Sun. And there's some sort of Kickstarter has filled the world with miniature games and folk on a map. Now, does chess fall under folk on a map? I would think so. It's an abstract folk on a map. I don't. Yeah. It does fit perfectly, though, into our next category, which is grid or area movement. Players control resources or units on the board, and they move from one space to another. The grids can be squares or hexes, and they're usually very limited, like you can't move orthogonally, or the knight moves three, two forward, one to left or right. I really dig, for that style of game, Onitama and the Duke we mentioned before. Now, area movement would be irregularly shaped areas. So these are usually maps of the world. So Risk uses area movement versus a grid. Both are movement on a board where you're moving one space, uh, APs from one zone to another, which is why I grouped them together. Makes sense. Hand management games. So these are card-based games where you're trying to get the right cards into your hand at the right time. Now, this one's really broadly interpreted. So a lot of people think all card games are hand management games. Personally, I save this for where you're trying to get a set of cards in your hand or the order you get the cards matter or games like Bonanza where you literally cannot change the order of the cards in your hand and you have to play the one on the far left. That sets these apart for me to from any other card game where you just have a bunch of resources. Now, to me, I, I my first thought on this was Pokemon, but technically doesn't Mahjong fall under a... Yes, ch- yeah. definitely. Yep, Jin, Jin Rummy, Ticket to Ride, where you're trying to collect the right colors of trains and then play sets of them. So now we get back to Hex Encounter, which came up during Chit Ward games. Think big hex maps with lots of little square counters on them. This is the Wargamer's version of Folk on a Map. Usually uses area control or area majority, and the one that always pops into my head is my dad's copy of Advanced Squad Leader that sat on his shelf for years, and the big hex map that he had posted on a giant sheet of metal and he had a bunch of magnetized counters so he could go play this game at the beach it's it is a hobby all its own it is indeed now with hex encounter games you often find something called hidden deployment this is when you don't know what your opponent is placing their troops before the game begins one of the best modern versions i've seen is battle or second edition this also includes block games where you may know where your opponent's playing but not what each unit is Now, like that, there's hidden movement. 
Now, these don't happen as much in war games, but this is where the, one or more of the players will plan their movement in secret, so the other players don't know exactly what's going to happen. The one I saw this in first was the old Avalon Hill version of Heinlein's Starship Troopers, where the alien player actually marked all their moves on this little hex map they had separate, where the marine player would move all his on the board, and the alien, the bugs, would only show up when they came in close enough. We're going back to that that fog of war in, in civilization idea, where one one player can't see another player's uh, concept. Definitely for war games, but it's a little bit more than that in games like Fury of Dracula or Specter Ops, in or Scotland Yard is another example where one of the players isn't on the board, and it's up to the other players to find them. That's what happens in all those games. So that's not really as much a fog of war, but definitely in a war game, I would call that a fog of war aspect. Uh, memory. Uh, we all played these as a kid, right? We just called it memory. You flip two, and if they match, they stay up. Otherwise, you keep flipping. They don't come up often, but some modern games do use them. Uh, one of the best I can think of right now is Hanabi, which is a very unique game where you don't get to see your cards. Everyone else sees your cards. You do not. And you have to try to remember what people have told you. Negotiation games. Games where players need to negotiate can involve trading, but could also be forming alliances. And of course, with alliances, there's the eventual inevitable betrayal. Uh, Chinatown is the purest negotiation game I've ever seen. So Monopoly then, when you're when you're negotiating yeah. for uh, turn down turn down uh, properties. Yeah, definitely. Uh, up next, this goes back to Fury of Dracula, Spectre Ops, and Scott Lillyard. One versus many. So this is when one player plays against the rest of the group, or the rest of the group plays against one player. Now, this also applies to Dungeon Master-style games, RPG-style games like Descent, or Mansions of Madness, we've talked about previously on the show. First edition, not second. Where you have the Keeper, who's like the bad guy. Or Imperial Assault, where four of the players play the Rebels, and one player plays the Imperials. Now, does this also fall under uh, XCOM, where the one would actually be the app? I guess you could say it's a one versus many game where the one's the app. Same with Mansions of Madness, where the keeper is played by the AI. It's almost one versus AI. It, it may be a new... I, it's probably a subset of one versus many. Though in general, I pile those together as co-op games. Co-ops was someone, some, something someone suggested. I'm like, is co-op a mechanic? Well, if I'm going to put one versus many, I probably should put co-op. One versus many was something I added based on feedback we've already received. So up next is pattern building. This is when scoring is based on placing pieces into a specific pattern. And I'm pretty sure everyone knows my favorite pattern building game, Azul. Pick up and deliver. Somewhere on the map makes one thing. Somewhere else on the map wants them. Bring them. Get points for doing it. Uh, there's tons of games that use this. A lot of boat and train games, quite a few pirate games, or more recently, the one I like the most so far, Wasteland Express Delivery Service. Although, really, that one fills in so many mechanics. That's just one of many. Yes, it is. Player elimination. Any game where one of the players can lose and the game keeps going on without them. In my opinion, pretty terrible mechanic, best to be avoided. The only time I can tolerate it is in games like Suro that are over in 15 minutes. Like, to me, this is an archaic mechanic that should not be tolerated. You know what? There's an interesting game that I just ran across today, and I the, the title is, is missing me, but it's basically based on the Survivor TV show. Okay. And you're on a desert island, and you need water, food, and shelter. And every round, you try to get water, food, and shelter, and if you don't have enough, the number of pieces you're short of any given thing is how many people get kicked off the island and die that round. Wow. 
<laughs> so it's a quick game. Again, it's it's, it's quick, so you're not you're not sitting around and, and going having to leave. It's the whole the player that gets eliminated first. What do they do while everyone else is playing? Like if it's an engaging enough game, I could see sitting there through it. Like the worst offender is werewolf. If you, again, if you listen to our episode about social deduction, I'll tell you how much I don't like werewolf. The first guy who gets picked when you can't even deduce anything, like first person who gets picked, that's terrible. So next is point-to-point movement. This is one I got from uh, Board Game Geeks. It's not one I thought of, but it, it fits. It's The map or board has spots that can be occupied by player components, and they're connected by lines, and movement of pieces is along the lines from spot to spot. The classic game Nine Men's Morris, which comes up as a puzzle in far too many video games, is a classic example of that. A more modern and fantastic game, which I'm probably going to mention multiple times because I really like it, is Concordia, where you are moving around the map of Italy or Europe if you zoom out. Also, if you're moving around, we might as well move around Japan in Tokaido. Going back to the family game, Snakes and Ladders. Or Shoots and Ladders. We're not allowed to call it Snakes and Ladders anymore. I don't know if you knew that. In Canada, they got rid of the snakes. Snakes are evil. Okay. I thought that was Ireland, but never mind. (laughs) That's something else. So push your luck games. Games where you can take an action and take it again and take it again. But every time you take it, there's a chance that something bad will happen. Usually that something bad means all those actions you took before don't happen. Just recently played CV. Great version of this. Blackjack. Yes, very much. Random player order. This is where each round of the game, the order of play could be different. The best version I've seen in this is in the Academy games. They're called the Birth of America series, even though the latest one's about Vikings. But the whole thing is there's a bag in the game and there's dice with no numbers on them that are color-coded. And when I first opened it, I'm like, what is this for? But you put all those in a bag and there's one for each player and you draw it out and that's whose initiative it is. That's who goes. Uh, more classic, fantastic game worker placement is Pillars of the Earth, where you pull your workers out of the bag each turn to determine who gets to place next. Real-time games. Games where you have to act within a time limit, often but not always simultaneously. So it's either... You need to build this now, or it's everyone needs to do this now. Uh, Space Alert is a good example, or one we talked about recently, XCOM. Had a lot of real time in it. Flip the hourglass and go. Yes. Resource management. Uh, This is one that, oddly to me, should have been on BoardGameGeek and isn't. This is, you don't just collect resources, but you have to determine the best way to spend them. So you're not just getting points. Like the the classic, obviously, is Catan. You're getting your wood, your sheep, your brick, and you have to decide when to spend them, and you have to trade them. To me, good resource management games also have a way to convert. Catan has this. You can trade with the port, so you can trade with the bank. There's other examples. You want to upgrade or trade those resources to be able to do something. They're usually combined with engine building because you turn your little resources into big ones to do big things. Technically, Monopoly actually falls under this, too. Yes, with the houses and hotels. And your resources are your properties, which you can trade with other players. Role-playing storytelling. Playing a character isn't just for full-on role-playing games, RPGs. There's a growing number of board games that encourage you to get into character and increase the enjoyment of the game and the immersion. Uh, We had a lot of fun with Fallout the board game. Like, there were times where we took actions based on the fact that we thought it's what our character could do, and the cards are which ways, and, like, there was a point where I was playing a super mutant, and the card was super mutants being abused, and I'm like, I'm a super mutant, I'm not going to let that happen. 
really mechanically that might not have been the best choice plus there's a number of games that are coming out now that are about telling a group story these are the games everyone talks about this is this a real role-playing game or not uh check out untold adventures await which uses the rory story cubes uh or cv i guess would fall under this uh as well if you really want to stretch it i'm gonna go back to the family the game of life yeah that CV is basically Yahtzee combined with the game of life. So yeah, you definitely end up you end up telling a story. That's yeah. for sure. Uh, Gloomhaven is could be an RPG. I admit it's difficult enough. I plan on trying to take the optimum action every turn. I don't plan on playing my Craig Hart to be a Craig Hart, but I will admit once in the game so far, we came across a I don't know what the rat men are called, but a rat man merchant and and she games is playing a rat man and she was all about we got to help the merchant he's a rat man so there was there's definitely some role playing slipping in there so another not very popular mechanic the roll or spin to move randomly determine what moves you can make usually very limited very frowned upon now there are a few out there that are actually fun one i like is called zaya legends of a drift system and while for a fun spinner game at our launch party, we played Catan Chocolate Edition. Where roll and spin to move are really great are for kids, where they are going to suffer from too many choices problem and they're going to freeze up. And you just want to give them that, you know, give them the chance to go ahead and, and, and follow the path. The roll to spin the move yeah. is really the way to do that for them. Well, it's also a great way to teach counting. There's a show. There's a show called Flip the Table by Flip Flory, who now does another show called the Saturday Morning Breakfast Special. I don't. It's it's awesome. It's a comedy show. It's worth listening to. They did Flip Flory's original show was fantastic. They played classic board games, terrible classic board games, and one of the the memes on the show is they would say it's a rolling move, and everyone would be like, "Yay, of course!" Like there were so many rolling move games. Talking about rolling, we will go to roll and write. This mechanic seems to be growing popular recently. Players roll the dice, then use the results to mark off something on a score sheet. This is often combined with plus your luck. You can often re-roll as many times as you want unless you get skulls. Now, Yahtzee is obviously the most well-known, but there are a lot of modern ones. The most, the best one I played so far is Saint Mallow from... Uh, Ravensburger, where you're defending St. Mallow from pirates and you roll the dice to build fortifications and cannons and merchants. Now, does role player fall under roll and write? Technically, you're not writing, but you're using the dice as the writing itself themselves? I think to most people it would not. It's, it's a dice placement game, so it's a worker placement game using dice, right. but there, you could make role player into a roll and write pretty easily. One of the differences in a roll and write is that you're going to keep rolling the same dice. Whereas in role player, you have a set number of dice in the bag and once they're placed, you don't put them back in. And it's actually really important in role player because the color of the dice matter. I don't know if it'd work as well as a roll and write. Good way to define it. So rondelles, these are wheeled shaped action selection mechanisms. So you have a wheel with a bunch of pie pieces on it where a player's choices action is limited by moving on the rondelle a certain direction, usually clockwise. These often work as a time track, which we'll get to when we get to T. But think of Takedo. If you took Takedo and wrapped the map around, it would be a giant rondelle. Uh, one of the best is a game called Shipyard. Fantastic. There are so many rondelles in the game. I think there's four 
great game. And they even have a rondel in a rondel. So when you go around the outside, it also matters where you are on the inside. I think you just like saying rondel because it's fun. I do. It sounds like a band, the rondels. I think it was. Now that might be why. <laughs> Route building. Connect points on a map with an emphasis on generally making the longest chain or connecting to new spots. Uh, see every train game ever made ever, pretty much. 18xx, ticket to ride. Uh, there's tons. Just Scenario driven. Not campaign. Scenario driven. Before starting each game, players pick a scenario to play. Now, this could be part of a campaign game or not. A perfect example of this is Gloomhaven because it can be played both ways. You can play it purely scenario-driven where you open the book and play scenario 18B, and when you're done, you close the book and you go away. Or you can play a campaign where you start at scenario 1 and unlock stuff on the map, which leads you to new scenarios. And to talk about Wasteland Express being all the games in one... That game is surprisingly scenario-driven, where each game you're going to draw three different quests that are important for that game only, and when those three are completed, the game ends. Absolutely. Set collection. Points are awarded by collecting sets of things. They usually go up the more of each thing you have. This is ridiculously common. There are so many set collection games. We're talking Gin Rummy is your card vase version, and the same mechanics in that are used in Ticket to Ride. Other examples that I like are the Rainier Nizia games where he turns this on its head where you're collecting different sets, but you only score at the end of the game your smallest set. So it encourages you to balance. Simultaneous action selection. Players have a variety of options each turn. They choose them secretly, then everyone reveals, and you do it. I You can't beat Race for the Galaxy here. It is the best simultaneous action selection game I played. Well, and you've also got all your programming robotics games. Yeah, Robo Rally, um, the League of Legends game. Man, that is an awesomely produced game. Mechs versus Minions. Really cool looking game. Social deduction games. We brought this up when we talked about deduction, but I put it in its own category because there are so many games that use it. You use social cues to determine facts about the other players. Usually involves hidden roles and usually involves lying to your friends. I personally don't enjoy most of these. I did like the thing when I reviewed it. There are others I don't mind playing. Battlestar Galactic is pretty good, but in general, I tend to stay away with from these games. For me, and I'm, I think the same with you, it's got to have the right theme. You've got to be in there for the theme. The social deduction isn't what's going to carry the game. I think what it might be for me is I only really like the line to your friends when you're role-playing. So if you're playing like a Cylon, I can get into it. If you're playing the thing, I can get into it. If you're playing the resistance where it's just red side versus blue side and you don't really have that I'm I'm a robot trying to destroy everyone. I don't maybe that's it. I don't know. I, I've been trying to think about that. After uh, a couple people, their feedback was like, I don't like lying to my friends. And I'm like, well, it's true. This game really does encourage you to lie to your friends. Why do I enjoy lying to my friends? And why don't I? Because I don't like most of them. It's it's an interesting introspective to do. So stocks, uh, board game geek called this commodity speculation, but it's stock markets. You can buy stocks and commodities whose values change during the game. The most popular example is of course the 18xx series of train games where you think it's about route building, but no, it's really about buying and selling stocks in those companies for a much lighter version. Check out a game called San Francisco cable car. This is, if you like Suro, you'll probably dig cable car. It's a very similar game. And with the advanced rules, you buy stocks into the route 
routes. So even if your routes aren't the best, you can still win the game by buying stocks in the routes that are good. For a really simple one, a game called Biblios, which is one half auction game, the other half stock game. Very neat, quick 15-minute card game about eliminating Bibles. Interesting. Take that games. Games where you can make moves that directly, adversely affect another player to impede their progress. Specifically, I think of this as not adversarial games, but this is where the main form of entertainment is screwing the other players. The most popular game in the series is Munchkin, where the first one to level 10 wins, and the entire game is trying to stop someone from getting to level 10. It's not really about you getting there, it's stopping everyone else. Tile placement games. Games with a board, player area grows during the game. So either you have an empty map and you put down tiles and it grows, or players have their own little thing that grows. There are, again, this is one where there's a, t- a lot. Like It's like saying dice rolling or card placement because there's so many games that use tiles. And to me, it's got to be that your own personal area grows in some way. So I don't think of, say, Clank in Space, where the board is modular, made up of tiles, and they're randomized. I think that's something different. This is where it'd be Clank in Space is as you explored, you put out new tiles and got the new areas. So putting down tiles to make them grow. This is the main mechanic in Carcassonne Patchwork. But then again, like really Terraforming Mars, it's not a huge part of the game, but it's a big part of scoring is putting out those forest tiles and putting out those lakes. And pretty much any domino game, which we covered a couple episodes ago. Yeah, we talked about a lot of tile placement games in there. Time tracks. This is where you are going to select an action along the track and the player in last place goes next. There's a growing number of games that use this, Takedo being a very pure example of this game. The entire game of Takedo is just one giant time track. And then it combines set collection and resource management because you only have so many coins. And then there's actually area majority in that because that's how praying works. When you go to the temple, whoever prayed the most gets bonus points and so on. Point to point movement. We're getting near the end. Really close. Trading when you can exchange things between each other or with an in-game bank. Catan wouldn't be Catan if you couldn't get wood for your sheep. Monopoly. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh. <laughs> uh, trick-taking. Very common card game mechanic. Each player plays a card or cards. Once all players have played the set, it's called the trick. The rules of the game dictates who wins that trick. Usually it's the highest card, but sometimes... And, and then what changes the most between games is what determines what the highest card is. Uh, Diamonds would be a cool modern one that most people don't know off the top of their head. My personal favorite is Spades and Hearts. We have one left. We have voting. At some point in the game, players vote. You may get one vote, or it could be based on the number of some in-game resource. It could be all or nothing, or choosing an effect. The result of the vote is going to change the game state in some way personally love voting in twilight imperium where the planets you own give you a certain number of votes and then you use those votes to enact laws or turn down laws that change the game going forward i'd much rather be voting in a game than in any current political election right now fair enough now that's a big list i know we missed some i'm guessing there's someone out there right now driving going you idiots where where is i don't know whatever mechanic i didn't think of shadow puppets where where's uh hand puppet role playing yes i own a game that has that i i know you're frustrated go to the blog find me on social media email me mo at tabletopbellhop.com and I'll either counter your offer or i'll put it on the list sean had a few questions earlier I obviously have some feels about 
what I think these mechanics mean and what games I think fit into them. And I'd love to have the discussion with you. And I am more than willing to change my definitions if required. The hard part I'm having with this is when to draw the line. So when is something just part of another mechanic? So one of the ones people came up with is they wanted me to put dice placement on the list. So example of Alien Frontiers, you roll a bunch of dice and you use those to put them out. Well, to me, that's nothing special. All you're doing is worker placement and your workers happen to be dice. The fact you're rolling them means that it uses a dice mechanic. So it's a dice-based worker placement game. Done. That's not its own category. But I could probably go into dice base and break it down to about 20 different types. And I could probably go into worker placement and break that down to about 20 different types. Where's the line? I figure for an intro dictionary of game terms, this made sense. Worker placement is a big hot one right now. Someone wrote recently wrote an article on worker placement on Board Game Geek. And it opened up a big old can of worms. Oh, yeah. And he's actually had to follow up his article <laughs> with a second article yeah. talking about everyone else's complaints. Um, it's, a, it's a big one. Yeah, I don't doubt it. Worker placement to me, if I take the spot, no one else can take it. Otherwise, it's just action selection. I don't care if it's on a board and you're putting a piece there. If other people can take it, it's an action. Anyone could take it. It just happens to be on a board I put a piece on. Just putting a piece on the board does not mean worker placement. Come at me, bro. We've got some a lot of chat going in the lobby. Well, we've had a, a number of people uh, sign off for bed and a few people coming late from uh, putting their kids kids to bed. We've got Random Scrub 23 who says, Bellhop isn't kidding about listening to feedback. I hassled him on Twitter into tweaking a couple of things. Yeah, actually, uh, some of the stuff that's in here is because because of them. So, yes, I do listen to feedback. I am willing to change my views. I am not one of those people stuck in their way. You present me with more information, I will reevaluate my thoughts and possibly change them. Though I'm pretty much a stickler on that worker place. <laughs> now, this was a great talk. But if you'd like to read more on this topic, be sure to check out the blog at tabletopbellhop.com and click on Gaming Advice, where you'll see this and other questions answered in blog form. Be sure to send us your questions over on the website under Ask the Bellhop or email us questions at tabletopbellhop.com or contact us on social media. I am all over the web. Send me your words. Patreon patrons, though, do get a bonus. If they send us a question, we bump it to the top of the list and answer that next. Speaking of our Patreon... A shout-out and a thank you to our backers. Misdirected Mark, the support you have shown for this new effort has been amazing. I have to second that. The Misdirected Mark community, besides all the free advertising they've given us, has been fantastic. We call them our brother podcast. Thank you, guys. They are now putting their money where their mouth is, too, which is I didn't expect. I thank you, Chris, specifically. Duran Barnett, thank you. Brian Kurtz, we know you're listening to us, even if you couldn't be here in Twitch. Thank you. Joe Swick, who sadly had to leave before he got to hear his name on air, you still rock. Now one more shameless plug for links to the best online deals on tabletop games. Do check out at tabletop underscore deals on Twitter or just search for tabletop gaming deals. This is something I do to help generate some extra income and... Right now, that would be appreciated. Again, we can't say enough. Be sure to check out on Tuesday nights at 8.45 Eastern, The Misdirected Mark, where Chris, Phil, and Bob talk gaming and game mastering every week. Well, that was the double bell. That means my shift is coming to an end and we're going to have to lock the front doors. Though the doors to the lobby are closed, you can always find us across the web and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Drop by our website, tabletopbellhop.com, for more gaming content. 
If you like the content we're providing and would like to support our efforts, please consider tipping the bellhop at patreon.com forward slash tabletop bellhop. Remember to join us here on Twitch every Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern and watch for the Tabletop Bellhop live to hit your podcatchers and YouTube at 2 a.m. Eastern every Tuesday. Well, that about wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For those of you here live, thank you for joining us and hang around in the penthouse suite for an off the books, unless you're a patron, after show. For Tabletop Bell Hop Live, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you, and game on.